and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, Senior Pastor at The Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday evening service. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, and we're in that portion of the book of Daniel that deals with the future prophecies, and we've already seen remarkable predictions made. We've heard of four kingdoms. It's said in Daniel chapter 2. It's said in Daniel chapter 7. We know that Babylon was the first one, and it's revealed in um, Daniel 7 that uh, 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 Greece and um, uh, Persia, then Greece, are the second and third, and they would, then the Rome would be the fourth one, well, we know from history. And we've seen the prediction of Alexander the Great's rise and fall, and we're going to see that one again as we go deeper into Daniel. We've seen the prediction of Antiochus Ephenes desecrating uh, the temple and cleansing of it that is celebrated as Hanukkah. This year, Hanukkah is December 22nd, December 30th, so our Jewish friends are right in the middle of that time of celebration now. We've heard of how the Antichrist would arise at the end of times from a renewed Fourth or Roman Empire. Uh, cause havoc for three and a half years and then be crushed at the Son of Man's what we would call the second coming. All those things we've already seen in the book of Daniel. And the prophecies continue into Daniel chapter 9 with amazing details about uh, Israel's future and their coming Messiah. Most remarkably, we're given a timetable for the death of the Messiah that only Jesus could have fulfilled. So the prophecy in Daniel 9 uh, that brings us right to Christ's crucifixion goes right alongside the prediction of the virgin birth for the amazing specificity of it. So let's read Daniel chapter 9. It's also a great and tremendous chapter practically for having confidence in the word and reading it literally and also in our prayer life. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asherus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to Yahweh my Elohim and made confession and said, O Adonai, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you've driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. 
To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us. Moses spoke of blessings and curses because we've disobeyed. The curses have been poured out on us because we've sinned against him. Verse 12, and he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it's written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name, as it is this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Oh my goodness. Get a hold of that for your own prayer life. We're not coming to you because of our righteous needs, but because of your great mercy, Lord. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people that are called by your name. Sounds like 2 Chronicles 7.14, doesn't it? Now, while I was speaking praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. So Daniel was meditating on God's word, taking it at face value, what God had said to Jeremiah, we'll see more about that in a minute, and then he used that as the basis for his prayer time to the Lord. He's praying the promises of God back to God especially for the ability to go back to Jerusalem and the unfolding of all that God wants to have happen. And the angel comes to him and says, because you've been praying, seeking God and praying, now I'm going to give you understanding. I'm going to lay something on you. And so thank God for Daniel's faithfulness in Bible study and prayer because we get this tremendous word in verse 24. Seventy sevens are determined. Now, many of your translations say weeks. The Hebrew word is seven, okay? So seventy sevens are determined for your people and for your holy city 
to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. The street will be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after, uh, we're going to talk about, Nehemiah describes that time when that happened, right? And after the sixty-two sevens, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. A prediction that the Messiah would be cut off, but it wouldn't be for anything that he had done, right? But not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come, that relates back to the Antichrist figure of the renewed part of the fourth empire that Daniel had seen in chapter 2 and chapter 7. The people, so the Roman Empire of the future prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. That happened in A.D. 70. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. So they go from the people of the coming king to that coming king himself, again, the Antichrist. Then he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, but in the middle of the seven, three and a half years in, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And for many reasons, we call this the most important chapter in prophecy. Well, looking at verses 1 and 2, we first see that God enlightens those who study his word. So, we have seen that Darius, uh, who uh, he mentions in verse 1 there, reigned under Cyrus. It was a media Persian rule. And so if we go back to the end of chapter 6, it says, verse 28, so this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Cyrus was the more powerful. Darius the Mede was probably the general who took over Babylon from the Babylonians. He himself reigned under Cyrus, so it's Darius and Cyrus there together, right? So you got that. That was 539 B.C., in fact, he entered Babylon on October 29, 539 B.C. Now, I love verse 2. It presents the old man Daniel. So, it presents the old man Daniel. He's easily in his 80s now, right? Sixty-something uh, years had passed. He was a teenager when he went, and he's probably about 80 or more now, and it's an old man. He's poring over the scroll that he had of Jeremiah, and how valuable, valuable it was to have that kind of scroll. Jeremiah had written it when he was in Egypt, and it had uh, been copied and given out, and only the most important of people would have been able to get access to that. And you know Daniel had used his political connections to make sure he had all the Bible scrolls that were out there, including the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah had been taken captive there. He recounted his ministry and prophecies, and it's what we have in the book of Jeremiah. Now, Daniel treated the scroll of Jeremiah as it was, the precious word of God. So turn back to Jeremiah from Daniel. So you're going to go to your left and um, 
go past Ezekiel and Lamentations to Jeremiah to chapter 25. And over chapter 25, my New King James Bible says, 70 years of desolation. Jeremiah had told them exactly how long the time of captivity would be. Jerusalem had been taken captive. The Jews had been taken captive. Judah had to Babylon. And he talks about 70 years. Look down in verse 11. He says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. It'll be far from the days of David and Solomon. Oh, it's astonishing how far Israel had fallen. And these nations, Israel and Judah, shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Verse 12, then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So the time came when uh, Persia had conquered Babylon. Now right there beside Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12, you also see Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 14. Maybe your favorite verse is Jeremiah 29, 11 that says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, right? But that was actually written to the captives that had gone from Jerusalem to Babylon. And he says there, hey, while you're there, go ahead and make the most of it. You know, make your time in Babylon uh, count. Um, go ahead and get your boys to marry good Jewish girls and your girls to marry good Jewish boys. Plant gardens. Bless the city. Be a blessing to it. For when it prospers, you'll prosper. And he was saying, you need to be the best citizens you can in that pagan land, even though you're dreaming about Jerusalem. And when he says, I know the plans I have for you, that meant that most of that generation, I mean, 70 years is a long time. Daniel had spent his teen years all the way up till his 80s. There he was in Babylon, and they dreamed of being faithful enough that their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren could go back and experience Israel as it was meant to be, even as they longed for the Messiah to come. So I want you to know that Daniel's prayer that he is about to pray is being guided by the insight he had just received from studying and meditating on, on the scroll from Jeremiah. In 25 and 29 of Jeremiah, he repeats that 70 years is how long the captivity is going to last. And it's supposed to be like that for us also. When we read the word, to take it at its plain meaning, to take it at its face value. Now, we understand metaphors and the like and stuff like that. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, it doesn't mean he's a loaf of bread. You know, we understand how to do that. But Jeremiah, David, Daniel had read Jeremiah, and his, he got to thinking. He got to thinking, didn't he? He had been taken captive in the year 605 B.C. It's now the year 539. It's 66 years later. And Daniel got excited because he's like, no, wait a second. Jeremiah said this thing's going to last 70 years. It's been 66, 67 years or so. Uh, and that means that any time now this restoration could start. And as he did the math in his head, he realized that 605 minus 70 equals 535 or so, just a few years away from the scroll that he was reading. And he's like, huh, my people aren't spiritually ready to go back to Jerusalem. I'm not spiritually ready to go back to Jerusalem. I don't know if I'll even be able to go as old as I am in these important assignments I have within the now the uh, Persian, uh, the Medo-Persian kingdom at that point and that sort of thing. 
He also knew that Isaiah had prophesied the name of the one that would say Jerusalem could rebuild their temple and would make it possible was actually uh, named Cyrus. And Cyrus was the one that was really running the whole show at that point in Medio Persia, right? So this knowledge from God's word energized Daniel as he prayed. What do you mean by that, Pastor Danny? Daniel was looking for literal fulfillment of Jeremiah's words, and he was not disappointed. And we won't be disappointed either if we expect literal fulfillment of Daniel's words, right? Pretty neat. When verses 3 to 19, you've got this wonderful prayer from Daniel. God hears those who pray diligently, we learn in these verses. And there's so much we can learn from our brother Daniel as we look at his prayer here. First of all, prayer must be focused. Look again at verse 3. I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So he set his face toward Jerusalem as he had done. The great promise when Solomon dedicated the temple was that when Jews, wherever they were, would pray toward the temple with sincere hearts, God would hear them and would forgive them and get them ready one day to be restored to the land and all that he was going to do in the future. So Daniel was faithfully setting his face toward that. He was also fasting. And fasting is valuable to the extent that it keeps us focused on praying, right? which I have found it does, and I commend it to you as an occasional help to stay focused. Andrew Murray said this in his wonderful book, With Christ in the School of Prayer. If you get a good translation of the classic, With Christ in the School of Prayer, it'll be a great blessing to your prayer life. Anybody here ever read that? Hannah has, great, yep, Patty has, some others. Excellent, With Christ in the School of Prayer, Andrew Murray. He said, give up everything to follow Christ in the path he opens to us. Pray much, fast if you need to, do anything you must so neither the body nor the world can hinder you in the great life work he has for us, talking to God in prayer so that we may become people of faith whom he can use in his work of saving the world. Isn't that great? So prayer gets us a little bit of rumbly in the tumbly, pulls us away from the sensory world. When we fast, that's happening. And when we get that rumbly in the tumbly, it helps us remember, oh, I'm doing this so I can pray. And it keeps us focused. That gnawing turns into prayer. It gets converted to prayer in the time we're doing it. Prayer must be focused. But second, prayer must be factual and fervent. Even though no sin of Daniel is recorded in this book, Daniel starts by making confession of sin. Our problem is we begin our prayers, Lord, you know I'm a pretty good old boy or a pretty good old girl. Uh, <laughs> the Lord knows you and I are rebels. Eddie said it when he did his uh, prayer there a little while ago. And you should start your prayer by admitting that. Lord, I don't think of you as much as I should. Uh, we don't prioritize you the way we should. We've got our own version of idolatry going on that's like side by side with those Jewish idolaters back in that day. And you'd be right to judge us and bring us into all the... Uh, contemporary ways that uh, captivity looks like for us, not experiencing God to the fullest. We compare ourselves with others and like what we see, but the prophets compared themselves to God and they'd agreed with Isaiah who said, oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I've seen the Lord and he could kill me. I'm such a rascal in his presence. So instead of comparing yourselves to each other's, how about in 2020, you say, hey, I'm a servant of God and he's holy and I'm not. And I'm not going to you know, judge others because, man, we all fall so short of his glory. And too many of us are good at confessing other people's sins, but that's not what Daniel does here. He teaches us to confess our own sins along with the sins of our generation. And Daniel goes on to say, God, we haven't listened to you or the preacher. 
We've done what we wanted to do instead of what you told us to do, and we deserve to reap the consequences of our wicked actions, just like Moses told us would happen in the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, if we disobeyed you. In fact, God, you'd be right to leave us in this pitiful state. So he says, God, I'm not asking for justice, I'm asking for mercy. And we should pray like that too. Third, prayer must be forthright in claiming God's promises. Daniel begs for mercy not because they deserve it, but because of God's promises. That he's promised to show mercy and forgiveness to those who humble themselves before him. And not only did he have in mind the promises from Deuteronomy, because Moses had said, hey, you're going to get blessings or cursings. As you go into this land, Israel, you're going to be blessed if you do what God says. You're going to be cursed if you don't. And, uh, and, and Moses had said, listen, I know how it works. You're not going to follow God like you should. And God's going to have to judge you. And you're going to find yourself in faraway countries. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses said, listen, when you come to your senses, turn back to God and he'll turn back to you. And he'll fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was an unconditional covenant with Abraham. And you remind God of that, he'll come back to you when you humble yourself before him and uh, turn back to him. And he loves you turns like that. And so he was praying that back to the Lord, those promises. Same thing happened when Solomon dedicated the temple. We've seen this as we've gone along, that uh, he said, when your people come to their senses in those far-off places that they are because of their wickedness and iniquity, oh God, when they set their face and pray toward this temple, even if it's not there anymore, when they pray toward Jerusalem, when they do, hear, hear, heal, forgive, and respond to them. Answers to prayer are based foremost on God being true to who he is and keeping his promises. Look at verse 17. He says, for the Lord's sake do it, not because we deserve it. Verse 18, not because of our deeds, but because of your mercy. How about verse 19 again? For your sake do this, Lord. For your city do this, Lord. For your people do this, Lord. For your name do this. And as we come to communion in just a little bit here, thank God for 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have to admit that we're unfaithful, we're unjust. He forgives us not on the basis of who we are, but on the basis of who he is. Isn't that wonderful? Fourth, prayer must be direct in asking specifically for what you want. In verses 16 and 18, now catch this because this goes right along with the prophecy that he's about to be given. In verse 16 and 18, Daniel asks for God to restore the city of Jerusalem. In verse 17, Daniel asked God to restore the sanctuary. In verse 19, Daniel asks for God to restore the people. And God's coming answer is going to deal with all three of those things. Not only in the short term, hundreds of years out, but even to the very end of the ages and when Christ reigns on earth. So, verses 20 through 23, what does God do? He hears this humble prayer from this man of God, and he responds to those who pray diligently. And I have to confess, I get absolutely choked up when I read these verses. Does anybody here sometimes just feel alone in the world? I know some of you are grieving and you feel that way because your spouse is gone, but just in general, do you feel like you're alone in the world? Uh, I love Jesus. I love my family. I love my friends. I love being pastor of the tabernacle. But there are times when I just feel so overwhelmed. Are you like that? At all that needs to happen in our country. All that needs to happen for a church like this to have revival. Um, and, and it's overwhelming. And I'll be honest with you. Sometimes when I'm praying, I wonder, 
is God really there? Um, I really wonder if he means it when he says he's my father. He's offering me a relationship, but I don't see him like I can see other people that I know. And he's saying, I want to know you in relationship as a friend and as family. I'm your father, God says to us. I mean, why would he want to spend time with me? (laughs) There are times when I don't like me. How can God like me, you know? I wonder why the God who keeps the universe running would ever care about what's on my heart and about what I'm thinking and experiencing and feeling. Daniel's in his 80s. He's seen kingdoms come and go. And he's seen times that he was really up and times that he was put to the side. You know, he had so much to offer. There were times he was shelved and on the side. And here he is, and he's praying. He's like, okay, 70 years is about up. Uh, We need to get spiritually ready for uh, going back to Jerusalem and the temple and all that will come after that. We need to be ready for this. And, And Gabriel is sent in answer to his prayer and comes to Daniel. And I just get choked up when I look at verse 23 because Gabriel comes to him and said, Daniel, the moment you started praying, God sent me to help you because in his eyes you are greatly beloved. If you love Jesus, close your eyes. Think about your own time in the word and praying. God, do you love me? Do you really love me? God sent Gabriel to Daniel to let Daniel know that he's greatly beloved. And you are greatly beloved by God, dearly beloved. You can open your eyes. Folks, Satan is a liar. We're having even pastors across the country sometimes commit suicide these days. Because they're just so frustrated. And it's a, there's such hurt and pain out there, you know. And it can happen to anybody. You can get overwhelmed and, uh, and, and bad things happen in a moment, you know. Satan is a liar. John 10.10 says that he has come to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he wants to do to you. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. And here's an 80-year-old man that needed to hear that he was loved in heaven by the Father. And you're loved in heaven by the Father. Satan's going to try to convince you that God doesn't have time for you, but God says you're greatly loved. And when you pray, help is on the way. Isn't that wonderful? So the moment you start praying, God starts moving things into place for you and how you fit with his plan in your life. And what Gabriel reveals next to Daniel is one of the highlights of Old Testament prophecy. Verses 24 through 27, God gives the Messiah to cover our sins. These verses let Daniel in on a plan that will take seven, 77s to accomplish. And when you multiply 70 times 7, you get 490. And I believe he's talking about years here. So he's involving 490 years. Um, if these are years, then we're talking about 490 years, right? In 2 Chronicles 36, 21. In fact, turn to the end of 2 Chronicles right now. So you might need a little help finding that one. I have to go back to your table of contents for that. But get to 2 Chronicles. It's right before Ezra, and Ezra opens with the same way that 2 Chronicles closes. And what is neat about it is that it actually tells them why they had to experience 70 years of captivity. 
and part of it was environmental reasons. <laughs> Every seven years, Israel was supposed to let the land rest, and Israel had never done that. They'd never obeyed that part of God's law. There were other things they'd never obeyed also, uh, and yet God was gracious and good to them despite their disobedience. Well, what is 70 years, 70 times of not obeying the seventh year principle? That's 490 years, right? So look at 2 Chronicles 36, 21. Uh, verse 20, it says, And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Let's go ahead and read the, how it ends also, verse 22. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that's who Daniel's serving under, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kings of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go. Mm. So for 490 years, they had failed every seven years to obey that principle. For 70 years, the land lay desolate, right? And it was punishment for that as well as their other iniquities and stuff. And verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9 actually does what prophecy often does. It mixes things that will be accomplished at Christ's first coming with the things that will be finally realized at his second coming. When Stephen Covey wrote his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he said, you need to begin with the end in mind. And the prophets often do that. They go all the way out to the very end, Christ reigning on a new earth, the judgment day before that, and then they come this way, back to the things that will be closer to their own time, including when Christ, the things we associate with his first coming. And it often unfolds like that. And so in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, verse 6 is about how a son's going to be born to us, what we celebrate at Christmas. You're going to call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Verse 7 says he's going to reign physically on the throne of his father David, and it will be everlasting kingdom when he does that, everlasting righteous time when he does that. And so it's got both of those mixed in those two verses, right? In Isaiah 53, we know the prophecy of the all we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And here we have in Daniel 9, we're being told that Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. So back in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 says that. He'll be cut off, but not for himself. But verse 24 says there will be an end of sins and reconciliation for iniquity and a bringing in of everlasting righteousness. So it's talking about the final time of perfect peace and then it comes back to the time that he'll be cut off, right? And sometimes the prophets do that. So when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant everything needful for a sinner to become a righteous saint that happened at his death. And he now trades his everlasting righteousness to everyone who believes having already died in their place of judgment. Praise God. Now, Daniel's unique contribution to Messiah's death for sinner is basically giving us the time frame for it to happen. Look again at verses 25 through 27. It tells us that the 77s are divided into three sets of sevens. There's going to be seven sevens, which is 49 years, 62 sevens right after that, which is another 434 years. Together, that's 483 years. And then it hangs one out there 
So there's a final seven out there, a final seven-year time period that's out there. So verse 25 tells us there will go forth a command to restore and build Jerusalem. And there's four decrees that happened uh, that could possibly be that when you look at the time frame. But when you look closer, there's only one. Some people have thought, was that the decree from Cyrus? Was that when they were supposed to start counting the years? That happened in 538 B.C. Could that be the decree, the one Daniel uh, was so excited about? But no, because Cyrus just authorized them to go back and rebuild the temple. It was later under Artaxerxes that they went back and rebuilt the city and the walls. And all that is described for you in what book? Nehemiah. Nehemiah. So Nehemiah talks about being the cupbearer for that king, and that king making the decree in 445-444 B.C. to go back and actually rebuild Jerusalem, including, as verse 25 had prophesied, the streets being built again and the walls, which is pretty cool. So that gives us a clue to why there's seven sevens distinct from the next ones, even though it's a consecutive time unit, 483 years. It may be that in those first seven sevens is the time where the rebuilding happened that Nehemiah talks about, right? But this is so cool because when you go to 445 B.C., and then come this way, 483 years. But actually, it's a little bit different than that because you've got to use lunar years like the Jews would have done. So it winds up really being more like 476 when you multiply like we know how to do and pull, pull back to the actual time frame. It's very interesting. Different scholars have done it this way. But it brings you from the decree in 445 B.C. to the early 30s A.D., so Messiah will be cut off 483, or with the lunar 476 years, after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And it's here, of course, where I tell you Bible scholars use things like lunar and solar calendars to try to pinpoint it all. But one of the more compelling arguments placed the time being up about the time of Jesus' riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Isn't that awesome? Praise God, one of the most specific prophecies in the Bible. Now, here's where we think about Simeon who had been told that he would get to meet the Messiah before he died. I wonder if he was reading his Bible like Daniel had. I wonder if he was reading the book of Daniel. And I wonder if in reading the book of Daniel, Simeon said, Daniel talks about four kingdoms. And there is no doubt the first one was Babylon. Daniel says so. And there is no doubt the second one is Medo-Persia, because Daniel says so. And there is no doubt the third one is Greece, because Daniel says, though, even though when he predicted it, Greece was a tiny place, and it'd be like predicting that Ringgold would take over America, you know, um, or Costa Rica would take over the world, you know. And so I wonder if, if, if he's doing this, and then he said, and then Daniel talked about one of the he talked about little horns. One is obviously toward the end of time, in the way Daniel says it, toward the end of time in some reconfiguration of the fourth kingdom. And that must be Rome, because Rome sure does look like this. But as Simeon thought, I wonder if he also was looking and said, hey, uh, he talked about another little horn, Antiochus Ephenes, 
and that looks like it's come to pass. He mentions Alexander the Great and many other things. As we go a few more chapters in, you see so many things that happened between the time Daniel prophesied them and before Christ came the first time. Simeon would have been looking back on all that, and then he would have been thinking about this Daniel 9 and the 77s. And the 483 compared to the final seven-year period. And when he thought, if, if that decree where Artaxerxes did tell us to go and rebuild the city and its walls, if that's when that clock started, it came down to, wow, just, that's, that's, that's going to be up in about 30 years from now. And so if the Messiah is a human that's going to be God on earth... He could show up at any time before he dies as a young man for the sins of the world, like Isaiah the prophet said. Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel, right? He may have been doing the same thing in his day that Daniel had done in his. Well, verse 26 tells us that after the people of the prince who is to come, it doesn't say the prince to come, it says the people of the prince, so that's that Roman Empire, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. We see Jesus saying the same thing's going to happen in his Olivet Discourse, and that happens in 70 AD. Jerusalem gets destroyed again during that time. Turn to Hosea from Daniel. Just turn one book over to Hosea. Let's grab one couple verses here real quick. Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. It says, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Well, that brings us to the final seven years. Look at verse 27. Again, we bring in this fellow talked about as the Antichrist. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Okay, so, wow. In Luke 21, when we get it on Sunday morning, we're going to see Jesus talk about the times of the Gentiles. That's everything from when Babylon took them captive from Judah all the way out till Christ's second coming. That's the time of the Gentiles, right? Where Israel uh, isn't its own country in the way that God says it will be. There are prophecies about Israel being restored to the land. We rejoice in them. There are prophecies about the temple being rebuilt and all over Israel right now they're getting ready. They're trying to be ready for when they can rebuild their temple. All kinds of things are falling into place. But verse 27 brings us forward to that final seven, that what is sometimes called the 70th week of Daniel. Bible scholars relate it to that seven-year period from Revelation 6 to 19, the time of the tribulation, with the first half being Antichrist's rise and the second half being all hell on earth as many, many bad things happen in rapid succession. Many times, Daniel's already talked about, uh, Daniel, Revelation, talk about three and a half years, 42 months, the number of 1260 days, I think it is, all those different numbers, and they all correspond to the same things you see here in that thing. So, you say, Danny, I still don't understand. That's all right. There's a lot to understand. But here's what, one way to look at it. These 77s are 490 years. 
And when Artaxerxes made that decree, it started a stopwatch. And the 483, the 476 lunar years went forward to the time when Jesus was cut off, right, for our sins. Praise the Lord. And had he been received, it's possible the next seven would have started. But he was rejected, and God, who's omniscient, knew all about this, so it factors into the prophecies, and it factors into how the New Testament unfolds, that we're in a time of parentheses, an age of grace where the gospel is going to Jews and Gentiles alike. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, um, Paul addresses that issue about what about Israel? And he basically says that thing, that this is a time that's kind of a parenthesis where Gentiles are being grafted in to all the benefits that the Jews employ. Jews and Gentiles now need to turn to Christ to get in on it. But there's a time coming when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in that all Israel will be saved. So what will happen is at the rapture of the church, when the church is raptured up to heaven, picture the stopwatch starting again on that last and final week of Daniel, that 70th seven-year period, right? And it will unfold. Christ will return just like Revelation 19 talks about, and there will be first a millennial rule and then the judgment and then... Oh my goodness, so cool. There will be the new heavens and the new earth and all the things verse 24 talks about, everlasting righteousness brought in will finally be fulfilled at the end of all 70 of the years. But right now we're in that time of parentheses, right? And I hope you understand that. Now, let's do one more passage and then we'll turn to communion. Acts chapter 1. There are some folks that say, well, you, uh, you literal guys that take the Bible literally are just being way too silly about all of this. We just, anytime you see spiritual language about a king ruling, you know, and, and the Messiah ruling one day, that's all just spiritualized language for what he does in our hearts now, and one day it'll all be about heaven, there won't be a new earth later on or something like that. And... Um, you know, and, and I understand that that is very appealing. For one thing, you don't have to work nearly as hard as I just have in trying to explain Daniel chapter 9 to you and taking it plainly, right? But we have good reason to take the Bible at plain value, and it really opens up all that the Scripture brings in uh, to uh, bear. And so look at Acts 1. This is right before Jesus goes back to heaven. In verse 6 it says, Therefore when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So his disciples had seen him die for sins. They'd seen him buried. They saw him alive after death. He's taught them about the kingdom for 40 days. And he has um, basically told them uh, about the Holy Spirit and witnessing and taking the gospel to all nations like Matthew 28 talks about, all those different things. But look what they say, verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, if all the language about a physical kingdom with Jesus reigning from a physical throne one day, if all that was to be spiritualized, he would have had to say it here, right? Oh, boy, you've got it all wrong, guys. Just spiritualize all that language. But instead, he basically talks about the parentheses and talks about how the stopwatch will start again one day. Look what Jesus says in response. And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you and into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. What happens in the book of Revelation? It talks about the Son of Man coming riding on the clouds, just like Daniel 7 had talked about. Everlasting righteousness is coming in, right? Uh, and so, so powerful how it all fits together. And it's all there, laid out in sketch with a little bit of digging out to do there in Daniel 9. Will you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.